Hello and welcome to the Mind Springs podcast with me, Alastair Appleton. I hope you enjoy what you hear, and if you'd like to find out more about us, then visit mind-springs.org. This is an excerpt from a talk I gave in 2012 in Norwich on the subject of sexuality and spirituality. This is the first part of two. In a nutshell, not one world religion has anything positive to say about gay sexuality. There are some grudging, we tolerate, we do not condemn, we love the sinner but not the sin. But there's no one saying, Alleluia, you found a partner, God bless you, I'm so happy for you, let our community support you, let us cherish your love. May you young men and women who love other men and women be welcome and be part of our community without any stigma attached. And the reason I've started on this slightly narrow funnel is because this is my experience. I grew up in an Anglican communion and later turned to Buddhism. Um, But there's always been this tension as I've wrestled with my internalised homophobia I've always found many voices around me who are quite happy for it to be there. But the point is that, in fact, most religions do not positively value sexuality at all. I could replace the word gay sexuality, certainly with transgendered sexuality, and sadly, in most cases, with female sexuality. A joyous celebration of the power of female sexuality is not apparent in most of our world religions. And I'd like to talk a bit about why that might be, but also sort of to start to think about what we want is a real a positive spin on it. And so there are some reasons why it's not had that. Um, and when we talk about the Abrahamic religions, so Islam, Judaism and Christianity, then largely it's to do with the unitary gender of the deity. But God is a man. He is a man and, importantly, he is an old man. And this is actually quite significant, because when we think about God the Father, when we think about the Father we think about the bearded white man, then the father is beyond the point of sexual activity. Once one becomes a father, one is no longer sexually active in the the very narrow biological sense. You've done your deed and that for the eight months of gestation, there's no more sex to be had. So there's something of a paradox in that Obviously, being a father, you've had sex because you've had children, but you have also sort of prorogued sex. You've gone beyond sex by becoming something else. You've moved into a different stage. So when our deity is in that state, and of course, most of us don't believe in a sort of man with long grey hair and a beard, but these sort of memes, these ideas stay in our head. When, when we think of the old man then in the same way we wouldn't really talk about, well, sadly, we wouldn't really talk about sexuality in front of our great-grandfather. There's a sort of squeamishness, a prudishness. Then 
This is what pervades sexuality. The senex archetype that Jung talks about, the old man, does not sanction the kind of free, anarchic, connective power of sexuality. He wants order and he wants calm. So that's the, the I'm obviously generalising slightly, but that's the, that's the Abrahamic religions. But it's also true in another way of the Eastern religions. And this is perhaps true of all religion. And even of what we now call, might call spirituality. Is this idea of transcendence. That where we want to be is up there. All of this, all this stuff around us, is somehow dirty and corrupt and dying and flawed. And where we need to be is up in moksha or in nirvana or in enlightenment. So there's a strong verticality. James Hillman, the Jungian analyst, talks about the, the vertical draw of Hermes up and away as opposed to the circular horizontal draw of Hestia, the goddess of the hearth which is more about what's here. So there's this tension between the transcendence away from the body and the imminence going into the body and celebrating what's in the body. And this is very, very key in a lot of Eastern religions in, in some ways, and I'll talk about that a bit later on. Perhaps more fundamental is this idea of splitting it's interesting, in the, in the Hindu cosmography, the world begins in a void, as the world often does, begins in a void, and then out of the void, there is the sense of I am. The self arises. And seconds after the, the, the phrase I am is uttered, the next thing that occurs is fear. It's fascinating when you read in the in the in the the, book, the Hindu scriptures that they say that the first nothing, then I am, and then instantly fear. And it's fear, it's this primitive fear that caused this very primitive defence, which is splitting. So what I don't like, what I fear, I put outside of myself. So I split away from what is not me to make myself safe, in inverted commas. So you get these polarising either-or dualities. You're either with us or against us. It's us or them. It's body or spirit. It's male or female. It's clean or it's impure. But underlying it all is a fear, in, in my belief. So there's a fear about, I am um, Christian and you are Islamic and you are different. There's no connection there. It's about making difference. There's a, clear, there's a clear difference between saying something is an abomination and something is pure in the eyes of the Lord. So this dualism, this, this split, has un, underpinning it is a, is a defense against this primitive fear, but it's, it's profoundly debilitating. So when we say that no, human life is about this, but it's not about gay sexuality, it's not about female sexuality, it's not about this, it's not about that. Then there's a, there's a fear in it that is, being, is driving that defence. But there's also huge loss. 
And this was something I encountered on a personal level I- I- in my life. I sort of, sort of went through a sort of late twenties burnout with lots of partying and drugs, and decided that that was a terrible idea, and that I needed to get my life straight. Interesting word. Um, and I uh, discovered meditation and Buddhism. So I really threw myself into it. I was like total Buddhist warrior. I went on retreats. I went to Thailand, joined a monastery. I practiced long kind of sessions, quite punishing um, ascetic practice. You know, I became a vegetarian, didn't eat didn't drink caffeinated tea. It was really not much fun to be around. Um, And part of that was a sort of slightly more subtle, slightly more Buddhist-y version of the same either-or split. Because there was the pure Alistair, the pure that felt peaceful and at ease and felt connected and, you know, Buddhist-y. And then there was the rotten Alistair that felt depressed, who still, you know, went on binges, who, who kind of had bad thoughts. And sadly, my sexuality got caught up in this, because there was this sense of being pure, and not letting, stepping back from relationships, letting go of attachment, became a sort of puritanism, a sort of either-or splitting. And I became just unbearable to be around. It was what I call my meditation Nazi phase. This extreme, militant, brittle separation. I'm smiling, but uh, it, it was at such a cost because I was losing all the connectivity. Which is, of course, ironic because at some level of Buddhism it's all about connectivity, but it's amazing how you can miss the point. And then in around 2004, I had the extraordinary experience of going to Brazil to make a documentary about. Oops. Shamanic Brazilian spirituality. Now this is a very different kettle of fish. The Brazilians are extremely sexual. It's an extremely sexual country. And the society is, is, has a much more, or a much different approach to human sexuality. But buried in the heart of the Amazon is a tradition uh, around... This, ayahuasca. So ayahuasca is a brew made from these things, Banister- these two things, Banisteriopsis carpi, which is the vine that you can see on the right, and another bush called chacruna. It was developed thousands of years ago in the, Am- the Peruvian Amazonian basin, and it's the underpinning of a, doesn't really have a religious name, but it's a sort of movement uh, within the native people of the Amazon, who used this brew, it's a tea, it's a very vile tasting tea uh, that gives you visions. They use it in a, <clears throat> well, in a religious context. They go into a sort of trance state and it's at the centre of their kind of spirituality, shamanic spirituality. And up until this point, I had had no experience of shamanism, I had no idea what it was. Any sort of very stereotypical idea of people with feathers and <clears throat> the doors. Um, but I went to make this documentary about ayahuasca and drank it. 
and had uh, a week drinking it three times in the middle of the jungle and had an absolutely extraordinary experience a life-changing experience because I experienced spirituality in a way that I'd never experienced before because right at the heart of ayahuasca in the, in the, in the ceremonies and in the, the symbolism of it is, is the female did we get that? Oh, I've lost the female oh. it's a female experience ayahuasca is often visualised oh I've gone too fast Sorry. Um, signalised as a snake as a female snake and the, the, the experience that you have is completely dissolved. The self dissolves. You have, a, uh, often terrifying, it was terrifying, a terrifying experience of merger. But also insight, profound insight into one's psychological makeup and the nature, in my case, the nature of sexuality. Because I saw that rather than being an either-or, the universe is an and-and. There is no splitting. There is no separation. And sexuality, I realised, with extraordinary vivid, vividness, is the force that connects us. It's the centrifugal force that spins us out of the self into the, into the sea of the other. Thank you for listening and please do join us again for more podcasts from MindSprings. You can find out more about us and our work at mind-springs.org. That's mind-springs.org.